All right, let's jump in. Uh, we're going to be in Romans 4, 1 through 12 this morning. Last week, uh, we looked at Romans 3, the very end of the chapter, 21 down to verse 31. And uh, this is a new section started in Romans 3, 21. It's going to go all the way to the end of Romans chapter 5, which is verse 21. And in it, uh, Paul is giving kind of the antidote to the beginning of his letter where he talked a lot about sin. And the answer to that, Paul says, is that God's righteous eternal favor is available to everyone by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And last week in Romans 3, 21 down to 26, uh, what is probably one of the most important paragraphs in all of human history, Paul talked a lot about the grace aspect of that. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, attested by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are redeemed freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That's what we're told. And we talked about exactly how that grace looks and what happened on the cross. Paul says that we were justified. That's a legal term. We've been counted innocent. We've been acquitted of our guilt. He says that there was redemption at the cross. That's a marketplace term that our debt to sin has been paid. Your freedom has been purchased, that there was atonement and atoning sacrifice on the cross. That's a religious term that on the cross, Jesus absorbed God's wrath towards your sin. He cleansed you of your sin and that those are all by grace. We didn't do anything to deserve that. In fact, everything that we deserve is the opposite of those. But in Jesus Christ, God has graciously extended those to us. And today, Paul's going to move forward and we're going to talk about the faith aspect. Grace alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so in Romans 4, 1 to 12, we're going to see that faith alone has always been the means by which humanity receives God's gracious gift of righteousness. If you can think back to when you were in uh, whatever grade you were in, probably somewhere in the junior high-ish range, and you took geometry. Uh, I had a geometry teacher in eighth or ninth grade. I can't remember which one it was. Her name was Miss Shin. Uh, Miss Shin had our geometry textbook memorized, I swear. And so she would give you the homework, and the homework in geometry typically involves two column proofs. You remember like what I'm talking about? You got to prove that angle A is somehow equal to angle F, which happens to be like four pages over in the diagram. And you would walk up to Miss Shin and you would say, I don't understand. I, don't, I can't like get the proof right. And off the top of her head, she could tell you how many lines were supposed to be in that proof. Well, there should be seven lines in the proof. And I would look at my paper and I would be like, I only have four. And she would say, yeah, you're a few short. And I'd be like, you're the teacher. Help me. Help me figure out the three that I'm missing. Paul is essentially going to work through kind of a double column proof to show that faith alone has always been the means by which humanity receives God's gracious gift of righteousness. That's always been the case. He's going to use Abraham as the historic template. He's going to use David as a model of that. And then he's going to show that the kind of enduring principle is faith alone. That's how you receive God's grace. And so we're just going to work through, him, or through this passage alongside him. So in verses 1 to 5, Paul spells out that Abraham is the historical template of faith alone. This is what 
Romans 4, 1 to 5 says, What then will we say that Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh, has found? If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness. Now to the one who works, pay is not credited as a gift, but as something owed. But to the one who does not work, but believes on him who declares the ungodly to be righteous, his faith will be credited for righteousness. Abraham's the historical template. Paul sets up the question. If righteousness from God is a gracious gift that we receive through faith, then what about Abraham? Jewish culture would have kind of held up this idea that Abraham was morally perfect and that he was declared righteous because of his moral perfection, because of his obedience to the Lord and fulfilling everything that the law commanded. And there would have been the thought that, so like Abraham, if we are morally perfect, if we uphold the law perfectly, then we'll be declared righteous too. And Paul says that is absolutely not the case. That is not how this whole thing works. And that might sound kind of like, you know, we don't talk about the law and moral perfection so much anymore. Uh, but that principle is actually still very applicable today, especially in our culture. R. Kent Hughes, he's a commentator on the book of Romans. He says it this way, despite the fact that amazing grace is our favorite hymn, most people think that if you do your best, you'll get to heaven. There's something within all of humanity that wants to work to earn things. In American culture, that's absolutely the case. We idolize the idea of like the self-made woman or the self-made man who, uh, despite the odds, kind of lifted themselves up from the ashes of their own difficult circumstances and has silenced all the haters. We love that idea. And without really thinking about it, we apply that into spiritual ideas. It's so deeply ingrained within us that we don't even realize that we often default toward thinking that about heaven. You can, you can hear that when people talk. He's such a good person. Such a, such a wonderful individual. It kind of leaks out of us in that way. But Paul's going to go head on at that. And he does so by asking the question that we should always ask about any issue that's before us. Verse three, for what does the scripture say? That should absolutely be the place where we go at any time. And Paul goes to Genesis 15, six. The scripture says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness. That statement comes out of a longer passage in Genesis 15. And so I'm gonna read the first six verses of what Genesis 15 says about Abraham. After these events, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abraham. I am your shield. Your reward will be very great. But Abraham said, Lord God, what can you give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus? And Abraham continued, look, you have given me no offspring. So a slave born in my house will be my heir. Now the word of the Lord came to him. This one will not be your heir. Instead, one who comes from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look at the sky and count the stars if you are able to count them. And then he said to him, your offspring will be that numerous. Verse six, Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. In Genesis 12, Abraham believed the Lord's promise to make him the father of many nations, to give him uh, a, to give him blessing and to make him a blessing to all the nations of the earth. 
and to give him a land. And so Abraham packed up his family and he left his home and he followed the Lord obediently. In Genesis 15, Abraham believes the Lord's promise to give him an heir, a son. And in Genesis 21, that son is going to be born. His name's Isaac. In Genesis 22, Abraham believes that God will be faithful to him and to these promises despite telling him to go and to sacrifice that son. Abraham believed the Lord. He actually lived by that faith. Abraham was as sinful as any human being born to date. All you've got to do is read the early chapters of Genesis to see that Abraham was far from morally perfect. He was marked by sin like the rest of us. But he did have faith. And he lived by that faith. Last week I gave a definition from a man named Alistair McGrath of what faith is. That faith is not merely believing something is true, it is being prepared to act upon that belief and rely upon it. Here in Abraham, we have a template of what that looks like. Not merely to believe, but to act upon that belief and to rely upon it. There's an easy way to kind of conceptualize this for yourself. Tomorrow morning, Monday, you're going to need to get up and be at work or be to your first appointment or get the kids to school, whatever that looks like for you on a Monday morning. That means tonight, before you go to bed, you're going to set an alarm. What's the underlying faith that goes with setting that alarm? That the sun's going to come up tomorrow. You believe that to be true. Before you go to bed, you think to yourself, I need to set an alarm because tomorrow's going to happen. And so you act upon that belief. You set an alarm based on that belief. You're relying on the truth of it happening. Sometimes we think about faith and we can't really articulate exactly what that looks like. You know exactly what that looks like. You act on it all the time. You set a meeting with someone four weeks from now. You're banking on the fact that four weeks from now is going to happen. You have faith in that. Abraham had that kind of faith in the promises of the Lord. He acted upon them. He relied upon them. He lived by that sort of faith. As we practically talk about what does faith mean, It means that you set all of your faith, your belief upon the promises of the Lord and then you act upon them and you rely upon them. And what Paul says, what actually Genesis tells us in 15.6 is that because of that belief and that faith, it was credited to Abraham for righteousness. In Romans 4, if you just kind of scan your eyes down it, whether you're Uh, Bible translates the word as credited or as counted. Um, The same word is used 11 times. When the Bible repeats something, it's worth us taking note of it. If the Bible repeats something 11 times in 25 verses, it's definitely worth trying to make sure that we understand what's being said. The word is legitsamai. It's translated credited 11 times in Romans chapter 4. It's so important that in verses 4 and 5, Paul just spells out Paul spells out exactly what he means. Excuse me. Uh, Hey, Jackson, can you grab my water bottle off the, it's right on the corner of the sound booth. Just run that up here for me. Thanks, man. I'd like to pay you for that. Is that, can you stay here? I'd like to pay you for, yeah, it's, no, it's good. I want to give you a donut. Does that change things? Okay. Uh, I feel like the work you just did merits a donut. Is that good? Yeah, that's good, right? 
Uh, hey, Gunner, will you come up here? Gunner didn't do anything, but I feel like I, feel like I want to give Gunner a donut too. Which one of those was a gracious act? Gunner. Jackson had to do something to earn his donut. And then I paid him for it. Gunner did nothing and got a donut. There are two ways we can think about something being credited, Paul says. If you have direct deposit at your employment, you work for a couple of weeks and then the direct deposit is credited into your bank account. You've worked in order to earn that. If you just totally stopped working, you didn't show up to work for seven years, but every two weeks they kept crediting your account, that's a very different thing. I really like Lamar's donuts. There's almost nothing Gunner could have done to have earned himself a Lamar's donut that I could have eaten myself. I just gave it to him because I think he's a swell young man. What Paul wants to be very clear is that the grace of the Lord is not earned. You cannot earn it. It's not something that you've done to deserve. God, when you receive God's grace by faith, he does not give you the donut, right, because you've earned it, like Jackson. God's grace works in such a way that he gives you the donut like Gunner. You didn't do anything to deserve it, but you received it nonetheless, and you receive it by faith. The donut's available to everybody, graciously. You don't have to do anything to earn it. You receive that through faith. Abraham's the template of that, and that's a promise held out to everybody. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, is a promise. Abraham believed the promises of God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And it's a promise of God for us today that through faith in the work of Jesus Christ, we can have his righteousness credited to our account. Nothing that we've done to earn it, it is solely an act of grace. Abraham's the template. The next step in Paul's proof is to hold out David as a model. So starting in verse six, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the person to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless acts are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the person the Lord will never charge with sin. David is this solidifying model of faith alone. What Paul quotes from there in verses 7 and 8 of Romans 4 is actually from Psalm 32. Uh, I think it helps to see the first two verses of Psalm 32 in a bigger picture. So I'm going to read the first five verses of Psalm 32. If you take notes, jot down to go and read Psalm 32 sometime and see kind of the full picture here. But this is what verses one through five say. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. David talks about sin three different ways. He mentions transgression, which is like stepping over a known boundary. He uses the word sin, which is missing the mark. And he talks about iniquity, which is to fall short of something. 
And then there's three ways that he talks about what happened to that sin. The transgression was forgiven. The sin was covered. The iniquity was not counted against. It's the same Hebrew word that the Greek translates into logizomai, credited. Iniquity was not credited against him. And then at the end, David makes the statement, I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will, co- I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave me. A gracious gift that David places his faith in and acts upon. And the acting there looks like confessing and repenting. It's important to note here that repentance accompanies the faith that receives God's grace and salvation. David has absolutely sinned. In fact, in the incident with Bathsheba alone, David had willingly and intentionally broken three of the Ten Commandments. Coveted, committed adultery, and then he had Uriah murdered. David recognizes that, and he confesses that faith in humility and in repentance. And what he finds is the grace of the Lord's forgiveness. As we talk about what faith practically looks like, it would be poor pastoral leadership on my part to not point out that throughout the biblical text, faith and repentance always move together. Where one comes, the other accompanies. F.F. Bruce says it this way, David acknowledged his guilt and cast himself upon the mercy of the Lord. As I was kind of working through this and thinking about how to best illustrate it, the the only illustration that really came to mind and the one I couldn't get out of my head was kind of the old black and white Western um, movie or, or show that involves a damsel in distress. And she's been captured by some nefarious individual and tied to a set of railroad tracks. And there is a train bearing down upon her. And at the last minute, you know, some masked knight rides up on his great white horse and unties her and carries her away from the train, right? Here's what never happens in that setting. Some nefarious individual takes the woman, ties her to the train tracks. The train is bearing down upon her and she says, this seems good. That never happens. She's crying out for help. She needs it desperately. And then, you know, the Savior arrives, if you will. Paul has spent a long time talking about sin in the way that it marks all of humanity because he wants us to be clear that there's a train bearing down and we must have a Savior. We can't just go through life thinking, yeah, you know what, I think this is fine. Paul says no. There's a moment of judgment coming, and in that moment of judgment, you're going to be guilty. But by the grace of the Lord, through faith in Jesus Christ, you can be justified and redeemed and atoned for in that moment. And so David confesses his transgression. He has faith. It's accompanied by confession and repentance. And in response, there's a proclamation of innocence from the Lord, a gracious proclamation received through faith. Salvation by grace alone through faith alone is a promise. We saw that in Abraham. It's a proclamation. We see that with David. It is the Lord who pronounces us innocent. It is by his grace that we are made so. And by faith alone, we receive that grace. And then in the last 
four verses this morning, nine through 12, Paul's going to show that that is this enduring sort of principle. This is what it says. Is the blessing only for the circumcised then, or is it also for the uncircumcised? For we say faith was credited to Abraham for righteousness. In what way then was it credited? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? It was not while he was circumcised, but uncircumcised. And he received the seal or the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while still uncircumcised. This was to make him the father of all who believe, but are not circumcised, so that righteousness may be credited to them also. And he became the father of the uncircumcised, or of the circumcised, who are not only circumcised, but who also follow in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. A lot of back and forths there between circumcised and uncircumcised. But the final step for Paul is to make sure that everyone is clear on the fact that righteousness came to Abraham not by being obedient to circumcision, but by faith before his obedience. Salvation by grace alone through faith alone is the enduring principle here. Abraham received the seal of the covenant, circumcision, and he was obedient to it in Genesis 17. Between Genesis 15, 6, where Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, and Genesis 17, if you were to go back and read and do a little bit of simple math, you'd see that there's at least 14 years there. 14 years between when Abraham believed God and was credited with righteousness and when he was obedient to the Lord and was circumcised. This leads Paul to say unequivocally that he received the sign of circumcision as the seal of righteousness that he had by faith while still uncircumcised. Because of that, Abraham's the father of everyone who has faith alone in the grace of God's promise and proclamation of righteousness. You're a Gentile who received God's grace through faith? Perfect, you're a child of Abraham. You're a Jewish person who received God's grace through faith? Perfect, you're a child of Abraham. Paul gives his life to making that message known to the ends of the earth. He states it clearly elsewhere in the New Testament, but maybe nowhere as clearly as in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 that says this, for you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. By grace, through faith. That's the enduring principle here. Again, I would be remiss if I didn't point out that in the same way that repentance accompanies faith, obedience naturally follows it. Abraham was obedient. That's the way faith worked in Abraham's life. And that's the way it should work in the life of believers today. Obedience follows the faith that receives God's grace and salvation. That idea is going to set up a lot of what Paul's about to begin talking about in the, in the letter of Romans. It's important that we see it now. We have to start grappling with the reality that repentance accompanies faith. Grace saves. Faith receives that saving grace. Repentance accompanies it and obedience follows it. Faith alone is the means by which we receive the grace that saves. That's the important thing to understand. But Paul's going to spell out as we go forward that repentance and obedience are natural byproducts of our faith. Faith alone has always been the means by which humanity receives God's gracious gift of righteousness. These are great Truths. They make, important, they make for important and necessary knowledge about who Jesus is and what salvation is all about. We've been saved by God's grace. 
We see it through the justifying, redeeming, atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross. We receive that grace through faith, apart from any act of our own. Salvation by grace alone through faith alone is a promise. It's a proclamation. It's this enduring principle that we can hold on to. But there's something even greater to understand. And I feel like between last week and this week, it's really important to make it clear. And that's that salvation by grace alone through faith alone is in a person. And that person is Jesus Christ. You could use any biblical example that you want, but I'll use Abraham and David because that's who Paul used. Abraham responds in faith to a dynamic interaction with God and he lives out of that faith in relationship with the Lord. If you read the Psalms, David is not just living and acting out of a head knowledge from scripture. He has a thriving and deep and rich relationship with the Lord. For David, scripture is an important part of how God has communicated with him. And those two things should be the same for, for us today. That we've got a dynamic relationship with God that by faith that receives his grace, we step into relationship with Jesus Christ, a person. And to be gospel-centered means that having faith wasn't a one-time act. It's a lived out continual state of being in relationship with Jesus Christ. Grace, in all of its fullness, arrived in the person of Jesus Christ. And faith receives all of that fullness of grace through him. Yes, there's a promise. Yes, there's a proclamation. Absolutely, there's this enduring principle, but it's all wrapped up in the person of Jesus Christ. And faith is about knowing him, and believing in him in such a way that you act upon, you live out, you rely upon who he is and what he's done for you on the cross. And you do that in all of life's situations. When we talk about being gospel-centered, that's what we're talking about. I'm gonna invite the worship team to, to come back up and we're gonna close with one more song. When we get together on Sunday mornings, what we get together to celebrate is absolutely the promises of God. What we get together to celebrate is absolutely the proclamation that we can be innocent in the Lord's sight at our moment of judgment by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. We absolutely get together to celebrate that that's this enduring principle. But more than anything, we get together to celebrate the person, Jesus Christ, to glorify him, to honor him, to lift high the goodness of God, the Father, in sending the Son to die on our behalf that by his grace received through faith, we can be made clean, justified, redeemed, and atoned for in the sight of the Lord. Part of what it means to be a believer is that we don't just lift that up and celebrate it and glorify it on Sunday mornings, but all of our life becomes about that. Every situation we interact with, all of life's circumstances or events, we look at through the lens of a relationship, a faith relationship with Jesus Christ. So let's stand up and proclaim the goodness of that together.